1: I'm a simple man Don't need much The only thing I ask for from time to time Is a cold beer And a nice big beautiful pair of boobs To rub my face in But sometimes Life as a midnight rider Gets lonely And the moon gets light And the wolves are howling through the hills. I put on my bro history podcast. It's the best goddamn podcast in the world.
2: They talk about history, culture, geopolitics, everything that you'd want to talk about in this lonely, lonely world. Make sure you like and subscribe it. Or just go on the win.
3: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. This is Danny Abdeljabar. Henry's on his honeymoon right now, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. So today, to keep me from turning this episode into a one-sided liberal rant, we have Joseph Solis Mullen back on the show. For those who are new, Joseph Solis Mullen is a political scientist and writer with expertise in China, and most of all, a friend of the show. What's up, Joe? How's it going?
1: Uh, It's going good, Danny. How are you today? Chilling, man. As per
3: usual. Did you end up uh, finding that baby
1: stroller? Uh, the baby carrier. I did. I did. <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't say that. My wife, my wife ultimately found it days later.
3: <laughs> for uh, for those who are wondering what the hell we're talking about here. Uh, I asked Joe to come on the show a little while ago. And ever since we've been texting back and forth pretty frequently. And I think at like two in the morning, one morning, Joe's like, hey, I can't find the, the baby carrier for the life of me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I left it by the dining room table. <laughs> <laughs> So, do do you have a habit of uh, <laughs> texting other people about your uh, your baby articles or?
1: Uh? Uh, yeah, every once in a while, I have. Like <laughs> I said, I have five kids, and so things can get kind of hectic. And <laughs> those those little details can escape me, especially when I'm texting multiple people at once. It really <laughs> it's <laughs> it's too taxing. <laughs> Honestly, apparently. if you have five
3: kids, I won't fault you for sending a miscellaneous text. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, let's let's just jump right into the meat and potatoes here. I, I didn't ask you to come on and talk about baby carriers. Um, Joe, I, I wanted you to come on the show and talk a bit about China. To kick things off, I just wanted to start by pointing out that a while ago, uh, I believe you were on the show, actually, when I spoke about this, I, I mentioned that you know folks shouldn't get nervous about China invading Taiwan until we start seeing troop movements from China uh, to the East Coast. And... Well, I don't think we're there yet, but there's definitely some shit going down with China doing live fire tests in the general direction of Taiwan, as well as some truth movements in uh, Fujian province on the East Coast. And we'll definitely get into all that in due time. But first, I I just wanted to set some context up by, you know, uh, talking with you a little bit about an article you wrote a few weeks ago called The Fake China Threat and Its Very Real Danger. I'd like to start with a quote um, from that article Uh, you wrote. So singularly focused and omnipresent has the narrative of China threat become one can be forgiven for forgetting that China is, in fact, a middle income country of modest capabilities and with no stated intention of doing any harm to Americans or the United States. Further, that China has not been bent on world domination and further still, as shall be clearly demonstrated, even if it secretly were, there is a negligible chance of that coming to pass whatever Beijing's efforts. So tell me, Joe, should I calm down about China or what?
1: It depends on where you live. Uh, certainly, being here in the Western Hemisphere, there's, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Um, China's relative power, we've talked about this, it, is, it has risen considerably. It now has the capability to get a lot of what it wants in its immediate region. And I, I don't think that we should understate or overstated i think we should just try and find exactly what's going on and just be reasonable about these things because what it it feels like is there was so much initial uh, hyperbole surrounding it Um, there were some early uh, like michael pillsbury's book the 100 year marathon but it wasn't until the last couple of years that you started to pick up the paper and everything was china 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 and for a long time about how big and scary China was, how powerful its economy was, how it was going to overtake the United States. But just in the last, I would say, year, there's been a real gradual but now pronounced shift in tone um, where even the major corporate papers like the Wall Street Journal, well over half the articles they run about China are about how actually it's a lot weaker than it looks. It's in terminal demographic decline. It's housing sector is a mess. Uh, you know, its economy is a house of cards. And it, it just kind of feels like after the initial kind of overreaction to China becoming more assertive in its immediate area. Um, for example, in, in the South China Sea, there was that dispute over the um, Spratleys with the Philippines um, where the Obama administration uh, told the Philippines essentially to just back down. Uh, technically, they were both supposed to, but the Chinese decided not to. But that, that was kind of an initial flashpoint. Uh, an early signal that the relationship was gonna start getting more uh, confrontational. Um, that happened at the same time that Obama was talking about the rebalanced Asia, the pivot to Asia. And so I just think taking it in its broad context, trying to see that while the Taiwan issue is, is probably the one single biggest issue, um, the, the relationship really cannot become about Taiwan because that's that's something that's just too sensitive and the two sides seem to be moving further and further apart and the taiwanese people seem to be moving further and further away from the position of unification and if the relationship becomes just about taiwan then then things are things are going to get very unpleasant in the next decade i would i would imagine
3: it's an interesting that's an interesting take man uh and and i definitely want to you know dive deeply into taiwan today and talk about whether or not there's a there's an end game or a path for peace for that but uh maybe we can start with uh just Talking a little bit about the dichotomy that you've seen, you know, the shift in the in the news about China going from you know it's it's a nothing burger to it's the biggest threat in the world to it's going to collapse in the next thirty days, uh, all over a, a very short, um, seemingly short uh, uh, in the grand scheme of things cycle. So you know, you wrote a lot about how you know there, there's a bunch of reasons why you know, China isn't a particular threat. Uh, To the to the world or that it's not going to go off and dominate everybody. And uh, you list out a bunch of things, you know, everything from lacking critical resources, depending on external markets, uh, demographies, uh, ethnic minorities, um, economic slowdowns or even collapse at that. Right. Uh, And and of course, their borders and and the let's call them unfriendly neighbors uh, that they have. So maybe you can talk to me a little bit and and tell us all about how you know China isn't necessarily a threat in general, and then we can talk more specifically about Taiwan and how sensitive it is.
1: Sure. Uh, so Beijing would would really like to continue to grow the the power of the state to raise the uh, the incomes of the people who live there. Uh, they would like to have a powerful, prosperous state. Um, Part of that means having access to critical markets far away. Um, I I would imagine that that much of the eventual deep water navy that China does float will be principally concerned with 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 patrolling in in the Indian Ocean and near Malacca and in and in the Western Pacific. Um, it has some serious engagement uh, trade wise with Latin America, but that that's actually declined since uh, I believe 2018 is when it peaked. So as far as its its geography goes, that's really constraining. It has like 14 neighbors. Um, it has several neighbors who are pretty big, pretty strong, pretty developed, uh, who have an interest in not seeing China emerge as a regional hegemon, which is, I think, something that it is interested in doing. Uh, that region historically sort of revolved around China. China had a very sort of self-contained system of uh, provinces, suzerainty over you know, the Korean Peninsula, parts of Vietnam. So they would like to have a China-centric dominant sphere, I think, in the same way the United States has for a long time now, basically a little over a century, truly dominated the Western uh, hemisphere. I think China would like to see that. I think it also believes that it it offers a, a viable alternative form of political economy and that in the long run the United States is going to lose interest or simply be too weak to project power over there and that its economy will slowly integrate states into a relationship that it likes. Uh, I don't think there's much danger of it invading any other country. Uh, the topographies and geographies of a lot of these countries are just horrible, like all along the south. Or just imagine fighting the Vietnam War over and over and over, um, which they did. They, they did fight a, a short border war with Vietnam back in, uh, I think it was 79. Uh, and it was extremely costly. It was extremely costly uh, to, the, to the PLA. Uh, of course, it's, it's gotten into brush-ups with India again. India's population is actually going to be bigger than China's here by about 2030. Uh, India's, you know, India and China's demographies are going in completely opposite directions. Um, even, even the Chinese state now, uh, which has acknowledged for a long time that there are demographic issues that, that sprang from the one- and two-child policies, and then from uh, a crash course in industrialization, which tends to come with urbanization, and we've talked about this in a previous episode, that naturally decreases your birth rates anyway. Um, actually, official government statistics in China, they keep revising the number down, but I mean, by the, by the turn of the next century, assuming that everything, sort of all the states sort of stay where they are, uh, I mean, we're, we're looking at the United States and China maybe having pretty similar population sizes, all, all things being equal. So that, that's a pretty tremendous, that would be a pretty tremendous shift.
3: Does that mean we're going to be in the billions or that they're going to the <laughs> oh, be in the hundreds of millions? Oh, they're
1: going to be in the hundreds of millions. Oh, shit. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's going down. It's going down. Yeah. Their population has already peaked. Um, it peaked about probably uh, a decade ago. I forget the exact the exact year. But yeah, there's just no way to replace these generational cohorts that were far too small um, they have a, a real uh, disparity because of selective sex abortion. Too many guys. Um, I think that is probably, and I think I've mentioned this. I think that's probably the hawk's best argument for why uh, China, mainland China, might want to get into it directly <laughs> yeah. with some of its neighbors, um, especially during an economic slowdown. Uh, I know you and I had been exchanging texts about that, but that's very dangerous. Um, the road to Tiananmen was was paved with high inflation. Uh, you know, low output, slow growth. Um, so there's no reason to think that, that those forces couldn't coincide once again. Um, I think you could argue the state is as powerful, if not more powerful, but they're certainly terrified of their own people, which is not something that, uh, you know, inspires much confidence. And that's one of the reasons I also think it's, it's economic interdependence with the United States and with the West more generally kind of cuts both ways. Because, yes, it's true that China could disrupt uh, those economies, it's also true that they could disrupt China's economy. And in the event that that happened, uh, we have institutions here that even during the worst crashes, economic crises of our time, have still seen regular elections, orderly transfers of power. Uh, there's no reason to think that uh, a revolutionary authoritarian government is going to necessarily hold on to power. Uh, you know, they, they, it's, it's, a, it's a very deep-rooted institution. It is very powerful, the Communist Party of China but there, there are a lot of different provinces which we've talked about. Um, there are Muslim minorities, uh, just all sorts of different uh, minority groups that could wind up pulling away, declaring autonomy, independence. I mean, it could turn into a huge, huge crisis, um, any huge economic slowdown. So, and there are, there are definite signs all over that that's already occurring. I don't think it's gonna be uh, a huge contraction right away uh, like what happened to the United States. Um, a lot of that the, in the great financial crisis was, was triggered by, by a credit crunch. Um, and, and this was because no one knew who they could trust to lend to, and there was no one who knew what everyone had. And so basically the overnight funding markets dried up right away, and the Fed was not there to step in and start supplying the liquidity that it would eventually start doing. So there was that, that interruption there that threw everything into uncertainty. In China, that's not going to happen. The, the spigots, the credit spigots will stay on. Bad debt will get rolled over. Um, it's, and it's, it's basically just going to keep carrying on. Uh, it's tough though, because the, 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 the amount of debt that, that their quote unquote private sector, which is closely intertwined with its state-owned enterprises and state banks, I mean, all this debt is just sloshing around in there. And I mean, we're talking hundreds of percent of its GDP each year. And you're also talking about a declining, working, young, tax-paying age population. Um, that's going to need to support the welfare of swelling, swelling ranks of the elderly. And China's population, their average age now is as close to 80 years old. So I mean, they live just as long as anybody over here. So it's it's going to be bad.
3: Well, well, I mean, you know, with with a growing population, you, you got to start thinking about resources. Right. And, you know, to kind of lend itself a little bit to your point, uh, which was rather shocking to me about whether uh, about China decreasing to the hundreds of millions you're kind of painting an interesting picture for me, and I'm starting to come around to the idea because, you know, just just alone on food, it's going to be kind of tough to feed the billions that they have. And, and you know, you wrote about a little bit about this in your article. You know, uh, you uh, one quote that I can pull out here is uh, you wrote, a shocking statistic on a per capita basis, it has less arable agricultural land than Saudi Arabia, making... The fact that it has been the long the world's longest, excuse me, the world's largest food importer, unsurprising. So I mean, right down to like mouths to feed, right? They've got billions of people. they per capita, they have less arable agricultural land than Saudi Arabia. And you know you you think, okay, well, then they'll just make more massive farms, right? Well, apparently there's there's problems with that too, right? Um, there's water scarcity. Uh, I think you wrote something like an estimated hundred billion dollars annually are spent, um, to try and combat desertification. Uh, I think they, they put up something like a bajillion trees around the Gobi desert to try and stop, um, to try and stop the, the desert from expanding. And, and they did it in the most stupidest way possible. They, they planted like three types of trees that don't grow there normally. And they all died from like one disease, which is crazy. Uh, I mean, it's kind of nice that they're trying something, but uh, generally speaking, I, I read somewhere that the the Gobi Desert has a healthier ecosystem than the borderlands uh, with all the trees that they planted in just because of biodiversity and, and um, the way that, that, that it manages water. So they're losing land to the desert. They can't feed their people. They're importing a shit ton of food, right? And that makes them incredibly you know, dependent on a global market. Um, You also talked a little bit about like, you know, uh, other resources like oil. Um, Right now they have, you know, one of the largest consumptions of oil, you know, in the world, uh, probably surpassing the United States at this juncture, and yet they hold less than 2% of all of the uh, world's oil reserves. So there's kind of an incongruence there, right? We, we in the United States do use a whole lot of oil, but we also have a shit ton of oil and we also have the capacity to make more on, on a whim if we decide that we wanted to start drilling again. So sounds like, you know, from a resource perspective by itself, you know, China's population is doomed to, to either you know, die off violently or to be curtailed. One way or another just because of the dwindling resources
1: well the thing about the the resource access is that the, the beijing's incredible period of development coincided with the this latest iteration of globalization um we've talked a lot about the idea that um the coalition that the united states put together at the end of world war ii the 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 carrot what got people to go along with giving up on having a sort of an independent foreign policy and allowing the united states to put its military bases there was access to american to the american market which had hitherto been very very heavily protected and sort of integrating all of these economies into one global marketplace has allowed you to sustain the incredible kinds of population numbers in sort of as you said the incongruous places uh, that, that really just could not survive as large-scale civilizational nodes with millions and millions of people. Um, this, this, this way that the world is set up right now is, is highly uh, delicate. Uh, I mean, goods move six, seven, eight different countries before getting loaded into container ships and crossing oceans, and it's all just very, very delicate. And if something happens uh, where that system... Yeah, and if something happens uh, that disrupts that, you can you can get a lot of bad things happening, and especially if the world starts to fragment um, into into blocks uh, that increasingly don't trade with one another, as during the the first couple of decades of the of the first Cold War. So that would be that would be very disastrous for China, and that's why I said that one of the reasons it wants a deep water fleet isn't so much to come meddle around in the Western Hemisphere. There's really no reason to think that they would be doing that. But there's every reason to think that they would want to be safeguarding those absolutely vital oil shipments that keep their economy flowing Um, because it will probably be many years now before Russia has built up sufficient pipeline to to be able to in a crisis substitute for for middle east crude
3: in, in that respect i guess you, you know you kind of pointed to it or alluded to it that the u.s giveth and the u.s taketh away in this respect because you know in your article you, you wrote about kind of the history behind china's up and comments uh and us kind of giving them the carrot of uh, allowing it to come into the you know world trade organization despite it not following rules and shit and you know it was kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand it, you know we were able to pull them farther and farther away from from the soviets but at at the same time you know resulted in the loss of millions of american manufacturing jobs over decades um but again the the double-edged sword is like a quadruple-edged sword because there's a side on the china side too right they gained you know access to global economic markets and in particular the very protected united states markets and at the same time they are now so incredibly dependent upon said markets that you know uh basically tit for tat uh uh uh, tariffs and and trade things hurt everyone uh in, in this in this uh kind of war of of economies so you know with that being said they need us for the resources it doesn't seem like they have an outroad with russia that's stable just yet um and you know they're that makes them incredibly globalization dependent Um, so I'm wondering then what happens to all these people, you know, all these people that live in China, if they can't sustain themselves and if the U S and China are, you know, aggressive towards one another and those, that, that globalization tie, you know, starts to diminish what happens to all the people.
1: Well, the, the relationship has definitely been reversing, particularly since, since Trump took office. Uh, he came in with a very aggressive autarkic uh, economic uh, philosophy for dealing uh, with the U.S.-China relationship. Um, it hasn't worked. Um, the U.S. balance of trade with China is is as big as ever. It's actually bigger than it was when he took office. Um, so I, I guess what I would say is it's 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 not clear what would happen because, of course the Saudis look like they are increasingly hedging their bets. Uh, One of the things that stands out to you when you hear about uh, how bad China is uh, from one of our politicians, they always talk about how it's a fight between autocracy and democracy, and it's global, and you're on one side or you're on the other side. Well, the Saudis and the other Gulf monarchies obviously do not fit very comfortably into that uh, framework, this rhetorical framework. Uh, This has always been the case, but... Uh, It's certainly uh, Biden really uh, did not get off to a great start with uh, with Mohammed bin Salman, who's going to probably be the leader there for most of the rest of our lives. Um, He seems to have really solidified power around him there. Um, You know, these countries look at the fates of other, uh, you know, formerly loyal U.S. strongmen in, in Egypt uh, they look at someone like uh, uh, Gaddafi, who had had assurances from the West that they weren't going to topple him if, if, the, if, you know, there was unrest. I don't know. I just I think it makes it very, very hard uh, for these countries to stay really plugged in. Um, I don't know. It's I think I think some of that is starting to come back now because I think initially these these longtime allies actually believed that we were going to disengage from the Middle East when we pulled out of Afghanistan, even though we're just as active now as, as, as ever, as we We ever have been. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, I think now that, and again, I I said it last year when, when we first talked, I'm just so worried about, (laughs) uh, you know, some kind of potential war with Iran against some kind of coalition of countries over there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to see how the things are going to get put back together the way they were, especially because the whole idea of strategic competition with China, uh, U.S. elites definitely seem to see it as a project to hem China in. Um, They don't say containment, but Anthony Blinken, for example, will say things like, we want to shape its environment as it rises, you know. Um, And if you look at what the U.S. is doing, well, it's obviously shaping its environment to, you know, pen it in. So, I mean, it, already a lot of really tit for tat economic sanctions and things, things too. Like, and these things really hurt. Like Huawei, which is uh, China's big telecoms giant, uh, its its revenue is down, you know, five percent year on year since the U.S. started started attacking it economically. And then there's been reports that the U.S. is reaching out to Western European chip making firms and telling them uh, not to do business with China. Dutch firms and British firms in particular. And of course, Taiwan is, has a central place there. These microchips are, are absolutely critical. So but then, well, of you know course, the there's,
3: other, <laughs> I was just going to say, you know where the other microchip maker is, right? It's Taiwan.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which exactly. kind of, uh,
3: leads us to that conversation. Now, now before we jump in to Taiwan, I, I do want to kind of put a pin in, in this what happens to the people situation. And we kind of touched on it a little bit. But, you know, the thing that scares me a little bit is, is that when you have When you're between a rock and a hard place and you have an authoritarian government uh, and you need to figure out what to do with, you know, the lack of resources and a population that whose demography is collapsing. um, And you've also got some, you know, uh, let's call them enemies or or adversaries uh, messing around in your neighborhood. It seems to it seems to point to only one direction in that is war. You know, one thing that you wrote that I found pretty funny but also scary is that, you know, for the people in China itself, you wrote that by the time of China's economic collapse, you know, there's going to be tens of millions of young men unable to find a job or a girlfriend, uh, which I thought was kind of funny because of the, you know, the selective uh, uh, sex abortions. but. But also, you know, poignant in the sense that now they have a bunch of men, specifically, you know, that are out of jobs, got nothing better to do. Either they're going to starve and, and revolt or you put them to work and you start a war, right? It seems like that would be that's the, uh, the U.S. hawk argument for why China poses a big threat, because now they have you know, a large population of young men with nothing to do with their lives and no food in their stomach, and they think, "Oh well, if I just join the army and you know, fight in this war, I can get three hots and a you know, and maybe some cash in my pocket." You know, so it, it seems like that could be a, a way to solve a few of China's issues. As as dastardly as it sounds, uh, people will die in the war. So there's your population decrease. Uh, men won't be revolting in the streets. So there's your social unrest uh, solution and uh, potentially you know if you take over some land you can gain some new resources like I don't know Taiwan and its chips <laughs> so uh, I mean what do you think about that do you think that there's any any I don't know any truth to that to that argument that U.S. hawks are making on on why China is kind of dangerous right now
1: um, I, I think the biggest problem with the argument is that However many people you lose during that that conflict, which in a potent, in a hypothetical invasion of Taiwan, I mean, we're talking about a lot of people. Yeah. Um, as we've seen, I mean the, the missile technology now, like, it's here. I mean, if if they especially in such a small tight waterway as the Straits there, I mean, we'd be talking about some very high death tolls there if if it was an out and out invasion. Um is that now you have all those fewer uh, strong working age people, uh, to support your, your elderly people. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I, just, I, I think that I think Beijing would really like to avoid, uh, a war. Um, because I, I think that those are, those are, it's a very uncertain activity. There, there are lots of question marks. Yes, it would create a rally around the flag effect, uh, that could give the, the regime some, some extra clout if it was in a real tight pickle, Uh, you know, having messed up the economy or something. But again, I still think that that the U.S. trade trade war with China gives Beijing a a credible outlet to say, hey, you know, things were going really well. And then the U.S., uh, you know, started uh, beating up on us. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, and again, as long as China has the money to pay for the oil, uh, I see no reason to think that the oil and the food wouldn't be forthcoming. I think the bigger the bigger danger there would be that in a potential crisis situation the US realizing that it can't get its carrier strike groups close enough to actually interfere in a hypothetical blockade situation without risking putting, you know, thousands and thousands of American lives on the line because of China's missiles that they could just start interdicting Chinese oil in an attempt to strangle China's economy.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Sure, so. sure, and 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 I think you you bring up a good point. It's it's if China has the money to keep buying the oil and the food, and I guess that that's a that's a good segue to talk about some of the economic woes that that China. Um, is currently facing. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been seeing, reading and, and watching a lot of uh, content around this uh, impending collapse of China. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think you came on the show not too long ago and, you know, said something to the liking uh, that China would economically fall. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, of course. But uh, there, there is this new idea that China's economic problems are actually way bigger than we initially expected, and and the uh, idea that China is this economic powerhouse that was going to su- supersede the United States was, you know, kind of um, hyperbolic in that respect. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the economy in China? What the hell's going on there, and whether or not they're going to have the fiscal capital to keep up, you know, their <laughs> their country.
1: Well, I think several important things have been happening. Number one, uh, it's been getting its access cut off uh, to, to various markets, getting that cut off or interrupted either by sanctions or by disruptions uh, related to supply chains and the pandemic, including its own COVID policy. It has shut down manufacturing and export hubs repeatedly. Um, that was part of what interrupted the, the, the delicate, delicate balance within the housing market. Um, because you see... When in the 1990s, when, when the central government divided up the, the, the fiscal and social spending responsibilities with the provinces, uh, Beijing took most of the revenue and left the local governments with the liabilities to pay. And so one of its only sources of revenue, reliable revenue, was land sales. And so selling those to developers, who then marketed these future apartments or future dwellings to people, who would then make a mortgage payment. They would would make a down payment and start paying on these mortgages. Well, that money was part of what was financing the day-to-day operations costs. And you had all sorts of of things getting intermixed. I mean, some of it was outright fraud and embezzlement. You know, the Hanan Bank, where the guy just took the money and ran. But a lot of it, too, was just taking that money, investing it in other projects, and then those projects not working out. Um, There's also a lot of waste within the system. So, And housing is is really central uh, to an economy generally. And when you're in the middle of a housing boom and you start getting securitized products, um, especially derivatives products, tied up in all of that, um, you can wind up putting a lot of debt into the system, which creates a lot of strain. Um, And this is, of course, what happened in in the United States. The the difference in China is the scale of it. Uh, Another big difference, though, is that because the CCP is so closely involved with all of these activities. They, their authorities are well aware of this problem. They have been aware of this problem. They've tried various things to fix it. But at the end of the day, there's just a ton of bad debt in the system. You know, Trillions and trillions of dollars of bad debt, non-performing debt. And uh, let's see here. It was... Uh, yeah. Uh, according to the economists, three quarters of new loans in China now simply go to paying the interest on existing debt.
3: Three quarters, and three through, quarters wait, 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 of new loan. Let me understand that. Three quarters uh, is just paying down interest.
1: Yeah, Yep. There's a lot of these companies who are floating bonds where, in the prospectus, it even if you read it and you do the math, you realize like they can't even service their existing, uh, you know, coupon payments uh, or you know interest payments uh, based on their current revenue streams. So I mean, the situation is very bad, and you have the the ability to go to shadow lenders, um, just as you did here uh, prior to the subprime crisis, and of course you also have state banks who are, you know, turning on the spigots, you know, just creating new new uh, new debt. Um, I mean, it's 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 kind of a, a bad situation, and there's really no way out. Um, we, we have some examples of what happens. The United States, we saw what happened there. Uh, we also got a good look at Japan, what happened to Japan in the late 1980s, 1990s, as it started to lose its central place uh, as an exporter, which China has started to see its role as the workshop of the world slowly eroded as its own wages rise. Well, the incentive to do business in China disappears because the whole benefit was low wages. The workers aren't more skilled in China than they are in, you know, Springfield, Illinois. The difference is you can pay one of them a fraction of what you pay the other and not worry about things like, you know, environmental regulations. Well, China has lost a lot of that competitive advantage to other local countries, like, for example, Vietnam. Uh, Actually, Brazil and Mexico have gobbled up a lot of that low-end manufacturing as well over the past five, six, seven years as China's wages have started to rise. China's GDP per capita. Is now over 12,000. Back 20 years ago, when these shifts started occurring, when China got into the WTO, it was less than 1,000.
3: Wait, wait. 1,000? 1,000? Less thousand. than 1,000. Less US than $1,000 ahead in
1: 1999 Jesus Christ. for China. Yes. So this is a very, and I understand why people got initially very freaked out. The only parallel I can think of is if you had been born in maybe like, uh, 1850, and then lived all the way through, like to the start of World War One. You would have seen Germany turn from this like nothing collection of states into like the most powerful, crazy world-dominating-looking monster you'd ever seen, all fair in point. like 25 years.
2: Yeah. So fair I, point.
1: I get it. It looks shocking. China went from being crazy poor and closed off and having a, a just you know a, a complete mess of an economy, social revolution in the streets, you know, to I mean, turning into the workshop of the world uh, on pace to remain the second largest economy, I, I don't know if it will ever actually uh, eclipse the US, the U.S. economy. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Uh, because I think you, you could wind up seeing like a lost decade of growth, like what happened to Japan when its massive property bubble finally burst. And it was in the same kind of permanent low interest rate, terminal demographic decline situation that China is now in. I so, mean,
3: by that by that token, if history is a, you know... Uh, it teaches us anything. The the 2008 um, financial crash, largely around the housing bubble here in the United States, took well over a decade for us to like truly recover from. Um, and if if all the accounts that I've been reading, uh, and you might have even written about this, are correct, you know the the scale of bad debt as compared to the U.S. bad debt on the same topic of housing is just ridiculous. China's got many times more (laughs) uh, bad debts in the housing markets uh, than we do. So, I mean, I don't know how to math that out per capita uh, because I wonder how that that makes a difference because they have quite a bit more people than we do. But, you know, just kind of back of the envelope math here, I feel like it would take more than 10 years for them to pull themselves out of that hole unless they somehow figure out a way to, to, you know, create more more value in the country, right? Not, not just wealth, right? It's easy to print money, right? But I mean, like value. Yeah. More inherent yeah, value. Exactly.
1: Well, and, and the 2007-2008 the financial crisis and then the subsequent Eurozone crisis was actually part of what shifted more of the emphasis on to housing in China. Because mm-hmm. actually, it, around 2000, there was actually a real paucity of, of urban housing. Uh, for its rapidly industrializing economy. And -hmm. so a lot of the initial build-out was was good build-out, necessary build-out. The problem was, right as that was kind of peaking, you had the huge hits to China's export markets in Western Europe and the United States. And in Europe, the crisis was prolonged, if you remember. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the Eurozone crisis really didn't finally result. You could argue that we're still living with it, but really, till at least 2013, 2014, but... Yeah, the, that really interrupted their export markets. And their policy, Beijing's policy, is to maintain employment, uh, maintain employment. That is what keeps social stability. Uh, that That's is what the allows promise them of communism, to, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're and and so they, they just started pumping more and more, uh, you know, credit intensive uh, projects um, instead of working to develop uh, an internal consumer market. Um, that's really what you need to do if you're going to be able to weather uh, economic downturns in other parts of the world. Um, for example, in most developed uh, economies, you're looking at uh, about sixty percent of the economy coming from consumer spending. Uh, in China, that number is only up to about thirty eight percent. you have very that's high not taxes. Quite enough. yeah, you have very high taxes, you have a lot of uh, financial oppression. um you have a real scarcity of things you can invest in. For example, China's equity markets are very volatile and its interest rates in banks were capped very low. And so what a lot of people did is they started putting money into future housing units as a store of value because they seem to only go up, <laughs> just like what was happening in, in our case and in Japan's case and every other case of a housing bubble you can name.
3: I mean, it's, it's backfiring so now because I, I've read this, is. Uh, I read this one report about how they're building all these brand new high rise buildings, but that... I'm not entirely certain what the conditions were, but they weren't doing something right, and now they can't actually complete the projects on time, or in some cases at all. So you have some people that are purchasing homes before the homes are built, kind of like a like a layaway almost, right? Like a pre like a what do they call those things when you uh, when you buy a game before it actually comes out? Ah, uh, shit. Pre-order. Body? Pre-order, thank you. Yeah,
1: that (laughs) is exactly what it is. They went and pre-ordered
3: a bunch of shit, and uh, you know this is this is kind of a good segue to talk a little bit about the you know the banking practices around here. But um, it it appears that many many uh, middle class Chinese people have had been spending a whole lot of money um, on mortgages pre-ordered that weren't completed yet, and you know when one developer doesn't. You know, meet their quota, doesn't get there on time or, or you know defaults in one way or another, then that rocks the confidence of the entire market. So a lot of people start pulling out. Uh, and then if they start pulling out and they stop if they start defaulting on their mortgage payments, then there's not enough money for the developer to continue developing the developments, which causes a very vicious cycle. and, and it's very, very reminiscent of of what appears to be going on you know with this Henan bank thing. And you, you touched on it a little while ago uh, and i found this uh particular story pretty interesting there was there's a lot of uh, misinformation going around about it like uh, the the short story is that there is a set of rural banks that have been doing some not great uh business practices um and causing people to get locked out of their funds within the bank their deposits their savings uh, I'll get into the specifics in a moment, but one of the one of the pieces of misinformation that's popping up is that you know there were quite a bit of of um, what's the word I'm looking for here protests that that sprung up as a result of uh, these financial issues, and this Facebook uh, uh, video came out showing a bunch of tanks rolling through the streets, and and there was like a correlation between Tiananmen Square and these protests. Which has actually been um, debunked as false, so although, you know, I think it's it's pretty pretty bad timing for them to be doing annual military drills uh, in and around that time, especially with Taiwan on the side. So it, it stirred up a lot of controversy. But the truth of the matter is, is that Henan Bank, in a nutshell, offered a bunch of Chinese clients really really high interest rates. They said well, you're going to get four percent return on your deposits if you deposit in this savings account. But the truth of it is that they weren't savings accounts. They weren't the standard, you know, relatively low yield like 1% backed by the Chinese government savings accounts. These were um high risk investment accounts. Uh and obviously with investment accounts you can potentially get a much higher yield, but also there's a shit ton of risk associated with it. And so Henan Bank allegedly is accused of duping their clients into putting all this money into these investment accounts. And it didn't work out very well because basically only one person was doing all of the trading for it. And um, a bunch of people started wising up. They started trying to get their money out. And then the banks decided to start locking people out of getting their money. Uh, And since these are investment accounts, they're not protected by the Chinese government and uh, there's a liquidity problem with this bank, and and it's causing ripple effects throughout the the banking situation in China, whereby you know there's just not enough cash in the bank. Um, I think the word is, um, oh man, maybe you can help me with this. What's the word when a bank only has to have a certain percentage of uh, the deposits of their um, of their depositors? Forget the name. Yeah, the reserve requirement, I think, is something like 11%. So the, those Chinese banks only have to hold, on average, 11% of what the people put in. But if they're putting it into investment accounts, it's like a totally different story. So, yeah, it's it's been crazy. Um, and this seems to be a symptom related to this housing market uh, in the sense that there seems to be these rogue capitalist-esque uh, uh, features of the quasi-capitalist uh, uh, economic system of China that that the CCP just doesn't quite have a, a firm grip around. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I, I will say that based on everything I've read, the one thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about China and how the different parts of the government fit together is that uh, the, the local governments and whatnot and a lot of the state-owned enterprises have a lot of latitude. Um, The CCP can't manage everything, and they don't really try to manage everything. They set broad objectives. They might hand down some guidelines, but you're really expected to figure it out. And especially if you look at what's been going on, Beijing's response to the, the debacles in the housing market has basically just been, houses are for living in, not for speculating on, go talk to your local government and lender. And that's pretty much it, because a lot of these homes are not being bought to be lived in. These are being bought as investment vehicles and Mm -hmm. you have a lot of middle income Chinese who are pooling resources together to make a big down payment and they start paying on the mortgage. So, I mean, it's, it is, it's a huge mess and it's, it has certainly stirred, uh, social unrest. Uh, the zero COVID policy has also stoked unrest. and then you have, you know, the, the sort of permanent low-rolling protests against various uh, environmental degradation that that that's prevalent all over China. So, I mean, China needs uh, a, a sizable security apparatus in order to maintain control over its very large and very unique regions uh, of, of a very large country. And so, again, I would just say... Uh, just to bring this back to what we were talking about, I really don't think China has any interest in, in starting a war over anything. And I think that that was very evident in in what we now know was a call that she placed to Biden the day before Pelosi's visit, which wasn't reported on at the time. But it was just reported a couple of days ago where he essentially said to Biden, like, look, we need to not let this turn into a crisis. Hmm. So I didn't actually a lot pick of
3: that part up.
1: Yeah, so it was it was very low-key after the fact, but uh, the papers made it known that, yep, they did talk, and, you know, because she isn't looking to have any big headline news right now. He's looking to just lock in that third term and then, you know, start dealing with some of the very real problems, you know, aggressive U.S. alliance building in its region, a lot of economic problems the long-term problems of resource scarcity, environmental degradation, population decline, the need to uh, foster its national champions in, in the technologies of the future, dealing with issues al- around uh, intellectual property with the United States, because even though a lot of the talk now is about how China is trying to lead the next generation in cutting-edge technology, high technology is one of the things that it, it, it imports. Um, there has been a rise in, 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 uh, its own domestic patents, but from everything I've read, uh, these don't tend to be very high grade. Uh, a lot of them since seem to be, uh, basically just copies. Uh, that's not to say there isn't original research being done, but I, I just think again, as with much of the, the popular press and, and even academic press about China, a lot of it just seems to be overstated, um. Uh, admittedly, it, it, China has some features about it that now that the United States has decided that it's going to try and contain China. Uh, China is certainly the most powerful uh, state the United States has ever tried to do this to, um, to, to basically bully around. Um, the Soviet Union, for example, never had you know uh, much more than a fraction of the United States' economic power or its trade power. Now the majority of countries have China as their number one trading partner around the world. And the U.S. is looking increasingly inward. And uh, so, uh, it's, it's definitely, the, the Biden administration has definitely brought a very multilateral, wide-ranging vision of the conflict with China to bear, whereas Trump's felt much more scattershot. Uh, they were both very militarized. Uh, Trump seemed to be focused directly on just confronting trade practices that he didn't like. Um, which didn't, didn't really get us anywhere at all. The Chinese never even bought the goods that they had agreed to buy during the phase (laughs) one deal and, and the trade in the trade uh, deficit with China is bigger than ever. Um, but the Biden administration has been looking to build on what the Obama administration was doing, which was building, uh, competing institutions and, uh, security partnerships in, in the region. And so it's, it's definitely getting very militarized and, uh, there's, there's open calls for it now. Now that uh, a lot of the political uh, commentary and the punditry and the establishment have kind of settled down, and you because know, they had been distracted by the Middle East and then uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, and China was always kind of in the background. Uh, but then they started reading those highly alarmist, best-selling books and just started freaking out. Uh, but now it seems like they've kind of taken a closer look and come to the conclusion that actually China's power is peaking. We're actually still really strong. We should just fight them now over this stuff. Um, I mean, just open, open calls for it, open calls for it in, in, in the, in the op-ed pages of all the major papers. Um, I had sent you that one really big uh, review section from last week where the Wall Street Journal, uh, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, our old friends, uh, the coming war over Taiwan. And it's, it's no longer the Thucydides trap. Again, the coverage is changing. It's no longer that two powers uh, are, are kind of rubbing up against one another. And that you know it might be the the fault of both powers. No, now it is what's called peaking power syndrome, the tendency for rising states to become more aggressive as they come become more fearful of impending decline. Now, this very scholastic sounding term cannot be found in any literature about the subject until about two weeks ago when the American Enterprise Institute <laughs> published a paper that by these guys that use that that term. So so it's it's no longer a Thucydidean dynamic which we're all familiar with. Uh, where there's not really like a really right or a wrong, it's just sort of a, a an objective look at real power potential. No, now it's sure. peaking power syndrome, where Beijing is, and I, I do I do think they're right. I think Beijing's power has pretty much peaked. Um, I think it's going to be mostly downhill from here, um, especially now that the United States has decided to be its antagonist. I don't think it's going to be good for anybody, but I think it's going to be especially not good for for China. Well, I mean, a
3: a basic onlooker like myself would be forgiven, I think, to, you know, if if what you say is true and China really isn't trying to get into a war. And if that call to Biden was any indication of that, the optics of what of what we see seems to be quite counter to that. Now, I'm I'm now questioning whether or not what we're seeing is just to um to further the narrative of this quote you know a peaking power syndrome or if this is just the reality and and china's you know misstepping but you know outside looking in here i see you know china struggling economically i see them having trouble you know uh abroad uh with their borders and and you know specifically with taiwan and i see them reacting to Something that, to me, for the life of me, just feels so superfluous. It's like a, a visit from Nancy Pelosi, and they meet that with live fire exercises. I mean, you know, just just a couple days ago, I think it's over now, and I'm not certain, but a couple days ago they they were shelling the shit out of the ocean, like pretending to be Kim Jong- Un or something like that. Uh, to be honest, it, it was kind of fucking crazy and and something that they did in support of that was to ship over a lot of military hardware to Fujian province, which is just on the East coast, right across this Strait from Taiwan, which, you know, from earlier on this episode was my, you know, yellow flag for war for China, you know, uh, going against Taiwan. So if they're really not trying to get to make this like a big deal, they're really doing a very bad job at not doing it. And it's only, in my opinion, lending to the arguments that these hawks are making about uh, about you know an impending war with China uh, over Taiwan and what I mean I was looking at what Bob Menendez he sent me this this one article that he wrote Senator Bob Menendez right democrat here this dude's writing and like you could have switched the name to Mike Pompeo and I wouldn't have known the difference to be very very honest I mean he wrote things like you know uh uh our legislation would reinforce the security of taiwan by providing almost 4.5 billion dollars in security assistance over the next four years and recognizing taiwan as a major non-nato ally it's like bro that sounds like the the three pillars thing that pompeo was saying now we've got people on both sides of the aisle and he's working with lindsey graham of all people on a bipartisan taiwan policy act of 2022 which would which would get this done you know some of the things that they're, that they're supporting uh, in some of the things I'm reading is like act first. So there is this, uh, the the, art, the other article you sent me um, by Hal's Hal Brands, uh, the coming war in, over Taiwan, they're saying, hey, here's what we should do. We should start stockpiling up tools and hardware all over the Eastern Pacific. You know, in places where we already have a presence, like Japan and and South Korea and 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 you know, places like that, and just already have like, like an they called it like an advanced uh, uh minefield, you know, and just set up a trap for China right now. Like start putting weapons there now. And it's crazy because like talk about like forcing China's hand, because I feel like we're going to have the Russia-Ukraine conversation here, but like, we're talking about bringing Taiwan into the NATO fold and stationing more weapons along the border. Again, I'm not going (laughs) to, I'm going to get in so much trouble from some people, to be honest. Russia is bad. Russia did bad things. Yes. They shouldn't have invaded. That was always wrong. But like. Come on, we're, we're creating the conditions again for for us to say China is bad for invading Taiwan and they will be bad. And I will be firm about that if they ever do decide to invade Taiwan. Um, but can't say I wouldn't expect it if we started doing half of this shit. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, I mean, that, that was really a shocking, a shocking article, too. I mean, it was a whole two page thing. It occupied a fair bit of the review of the Sunday Times uh, last last week, and I just I couldn't believe it. I read it twice. I just I could not believe what he was calling for. I mean, things are already very hot. And the the visit with Pelosi, uh, again, I think I just it's, I see it as part of a long line of different activities that the United States has done over the course of the last, you know, let's say 10 years. Because the George W. Bush administration actually did a pretty decent job of, of the Taiwan issue while, while his administration was there, actually. Strategic but,
3: ambiguity and
1: the like. Yeah, you know. yeah, and, and really slapping down the talk of, of independence very firmly, um, you know, no major visits. The last major visit was was Gingrich back in 97, but that was happening under totally different context. Yes, the, the Straits crisis was going on, but it was part of a visit where Gingrich went to Beijing first, right? He went to Beijing, put in some FaceTime there. Relations, they were trying to get him back on track because they were trying to bring them into the, the WTO later. Um, but now it just, it seems like, and I had circled this in the paper too, because someone had made this point that like, I, I'm a big believer that different efforts at detente between the United States and Soviet Union were, were purposefully undermined by domestic forces who, who did not want to see that happen. Um, before news of Mrs. Pelosi's trip leaked to the media in mid-July, the Biden administration and China's leadership were engaged in tentative efforts to stabilize unsteady relations, and that's true. That's absolutely true, and it just it reminds me of something that was in the the, the that broke the other day, which was the Iran nuclear negotiations were gonna they were gonna give it one last heave ho, and we're hearing oh they're so close they're so close. The Justice Department announces that they've. Uh, got an investigation going about the Iranian, uh, the Iranians trying to assassinate uh, John Bolton. John Bolton. <laughs> yeah. And Mike Pompeo. about that. And it's like it, it, it almost <laughs> feels like y- you have the different interests within the government, and there are certain elements within the government that would like to put issues to rest or leave issues lie, but there are other issues, issue groups, and different people who are pushing for different policies. And right now, it just seems like all the worst ones are winning out. Uh, if you're someone who is pro peace, who's pro trade, uh who's pro cultural interchange, uh which I'm I'm pro all those things. And those are things that are, are that will not happen. Um there's already been a big a big decrease. A uh, part of it was COVID, but also part of it is just that it's it's very clearly now uh I mean, states are passing le- like pretty visibly like anti like borderline anti-Chinese type legislation as far as like trying to prevent uh Chinese nationals from like going to school there and things like that uh, because you know they're all spies or something um, not that some, some number of them might might be but like is, don't we do that isn't that just kind of understood to be like just you know it's it's like
3: the risk that? that you take because the benefits way outweigh the risk like the cultural interchange and you know a lot of those, those people sometimes they end up moving here permanently and contributing permanently to the United States why wouldn't we want that there's just crazy yeah
1: Yeah, i mean i'm i'm absolutely with you i also think that that's really important for for that human to human contact Mm -hmm. Uh, we should be doing more more talking shops with beijing instead of like going out of our way to like boycott their you know institutions that they're trying to set up like the asian infrastructure development bank that we tried to torpedo before it even got off the ground you know it just stuff like that makes it seem like our government is very determined to uh, maintain it's hegemonic position. Um, it is a regional hegemon, but there's no doubt that it, it it has still more global reach than anyone else. And, uh, it's, it's just not been willing to see any renegotiation of any of the security architecture around the world. Um, which is, is just really surprising because the harder you pull, uh, you know, the more resistance you're going to get especially because something like the middle east for example that's not even like really core to our interests anymore like we haven't been dependent on on middle eastern oil since i was in like i don't know my my early teens um but it's it's definitely very troubling stuff and it it forces countries together and it makes resolving certain other issues like north korea's nuclear program very very difficult Mm -hmm. and uh
2: It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah,
1: yeah we forget uh, about him.
3: He's he's still over there messing around, shooting rockets into the ocean and, yeah, you know, and getting and better every US, day.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the U.S. really dropped the ball there. Again, it was John Bolton. John Bolton, who hates all uh, nuclear arms control treaties, hates all nuclear deals, who, who really had a hand in, in killing that, uh, the agreed framework that had been set up there uh, in the late part of the Clinton years. Um, but if you look at it, one of the key things I thought from Pelosi's trip was uh, the the new South Korean uh, leader decided uh, not to not to meet with her, and uh, I had sent you that that uh, that piece from the Diplomat, which I, I think is a really good uh, publication for for uh, East Asian news uh, specifically. They, they they really didn't didn't pick a side. They they tried very hard to sit on the fence there. Um, other countries had, had issued statements more in line with the US position. countries like uh, Japan, Australia, India w- was definitely leaning towards the United States. Um, Vietnam, Thailand was neutral, uh, you know it, it's just, it's very telling that, that South Korea, I mean, it's so intertwined with China. It's got North Korea on its, on its doorstep. It can't be sure that the United States is going to stick around in the region. I see South Korea as a big hedger right now and uh of yeah, course, maybe I, I mean they, they do where... have the
3: benefit of having i think the largest um u.s military presence on the planet like they have the largest yeah um yeah. like so. stationed there all the time so i mean they have that benefit but i i'd agree with you i think in light of of many of the recent events they i don't think anyone in the world should expect the united states to come for them and to come to their assistance and have it be like a like a positive thing it seems like every time we try to mess around we just make things worse but that is an opinion (laughs) that some might hold i think we should just mind our own business you know and
1: i mean i think yeah i think i think it really i think it really just depends who you ask yeah i mean i I certainly think uh the japanese uh a large a large part of their of their political elite and their population have been uh very Uh, for the relationship, but there's also uh, another wing of the parties that that thinks that Japan needs to be uh, able to take care of itself and needs to kind of cut loose from the United States' influence uh, that's grown over the years um it's not to say that the United States doesn't have interest there but
0: both can what? be
3: true for Japan you know specifically yeah, yeah.
0: but that that's yeah, the absolutely. thing
3: it's it's this like like this this bipolarity of argumentation that happens around geopolitics about like it has to be this or that right yeah it's 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 the truth is always the nuance in between you know and you know kind of talking about like nuclear deals and stuff like that i think one way that we could actually start working more with china is that they're working on a lot of really awesome new nuclear reactor technology and they're already a nuclear nation so it's not like we put ourselves at any risk of you know, giving them any more stuff. But I think creating limitless uh, clean energy would be a cool thing to work on together. And they seem to be putting a lot of investments in there. And that's the only one place that I'm seeing from China for high technology. That could be a great way for us to work with them.
1: Yeah, I, I would definitely support any initiative like that. Uh, anything that, that turns down the the volume on on really the the, the few areas where we have a lot of conflict. I think you're absolutely right. I think when you look at the polls, most most co- the populations of most countries when asked, they don't want to choose between the two. I think in the, the Indonesian state the statement from the Indonesian government put it put it really well. They don't want to see anybody get invaded. they don't want to see anybody's toes get stepped on either. and they would just like everyone to just calm down. you know, the, the United States watched China get wealthier and more powerful for, you know, 30 years without doing anything about it, and now all of a sudden, now that China is actually capable, I think, of effectively uh, employing a strategy of area denial with a combination of its fast attack submarines, mines, and missiles, I think it's perfectly, uh, perfectly reasonable to think that the Chinese could deploy an effective area denial strategy um, in a blockade the, the fact that Nancy Pelosi is visiting there in, in the context of the, the worst relations between the U.S. and China in, in probably my lifetime, uh, I think is, is telling and, and quite inappropriate if, if the goal of the relationship is to really work towards smoothing things out. like they, I feel like, yes, they didn't side with the United States uh, over the Russia-Ukraine thing, but they also haven't really been throwing Russia any help either. I mean, they they feel justly in my mind, like, hey, you know, the U.S. was not really paying attention to Russia's security concerns. And we got a lot of the same beefs there. So we we understand how that goes, you know. But at the same time, we don't want to run afoul of the U.S. Treasury Department and all those sanctions. We have a lot of economic interests there. I I don't think China seeks like a huge revision of of the global order. I think they would just like to have what they feel is their proper place within that order as a partner. Uh, one whose economy is you know, approximately the same size. You know, It's a huge country. It's very important, central to trade. And uh, so I, I don't see why we can't have some kind of, of compromise uh, to, to ameliorate our competing interests there. Taiwan, again, is, is the, the, real, the real standout there because I think there are, there are perfectly credible arguments on every single side. And at the end of the day, I just look at it and say, well, look, the official U.S. government policy adopted by both administrations, is that there's one China, and Taiwan is part of it. Now, if we just step back and see what happens, I'm fairly certain if nobody from outside interferes, the mainland part of China is going to win. And that's always been true going all the way back to the 50s. So it looks to me like we're the ones preventing the conclusion of a civil war that's been ongoing. And yes, I understand Taiwan has never technically been part of communist China. That's that's perfectly fine. For a long time, uh, the Republican government on Taiwan claimed mainland China as a rebellious set of provinces. So they both had territory. Yeah, they both had territorial claims on each other. And Nixon and then Carter, they decided that it was time to. Uh, rec- recognize the Beijing government to bring it into the community of nations to owe- to give it most favored tra- nation trading status and. Uh, to you and so from from my perspective at that point you agreed not to put military hardware on Taiwan which we know now that the US has military assets on Taiwan we know that from a Wall Street Journal leak from last year and we're not supposed to have high level diplomatic contacts with Taiwan either well Nancy Pelosi is the third ranking member of our government so for her to go visit there uh you know, and especially with her history uh, of, of being kind of a China uh, provoker, being being kind of a hawk, you know, when she was in China uh, back, you know, uh, just a couple of years after Tiananmen, you know, she rolled out some big banner for a photo op while she was there, you know, basically condemning the government and stuff, which like, whatever. But I'm just saying, like, she's a person with a history there. And uh, yeah, and, and just it's it's tough. It's very tough stuff to, to see. Uh, yes, Beijing did rattle the saber quite a lot, but I think that she had to do that uh, for his domestic political audience. I mean, it just the whole ethos of their propaganda system about the West is decadent and declining, and China is going to rule its area and have its sovereignty back, and no one's going to push us around and stuff. Well, the Americans basically just gave you a huge middle finger. Right. And so right. if you don't, if you don't respond in some way, like y- you just look, you just look absurd. I mean, some of the, some of the like really hawkish, like social media commentators from China were like calling for them to shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane and stuff. Yeah. There if was a lot of memes Nancy about Pelosi's
3: us being plane. like, go for it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, if you notice her plane took that like really circuitous route right. to get there. So I'm wondering if that, if there wasn't, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that would, that would just be totally outrageous to do something like that. I I mean, if they wanted to shoot
3: Nancy Pelosi's plan out the sky, they had every capability to do it. I don't think that that was ever an option. I think what they did was as far as they can take it uh, and, and without actually sparking a war. And I think it was pretty effective because what ended up happening was that the, you know, it slowed greatly, you know, the economy of Taiwan because, you know, all of the vessels moving in and out of Taiwan for for export and trade. Uh, rightfully are understood that hey, there's a fucking shooting war going on right now. I'm not going to go anywhere near that. So it's slowed trade, and they have proved uh, in another way that they can um, un- that unlike Russia, they can uh, whip up all of their armed forces. As a matter of fact, all of their major branches participated in that live fire exercises, including their rocket. Um, I don't know what they call it, the rocket team the the, the army yeah the rocket force the army the the navy the air force you know they all got together and did a joint military exercise and proved that they can do that pretty effectively um, so I mean I'm not justifying what they did but that was about as far as they can take it without um, without causing a fucking war with that being said I, I kind of want to wrap up this this uh, show here and give a little bit of time to Taiwan because I think we've been talking a lot about China, and we've been talking a lot about the U.S., but not a whole lot about what does Taiwan want, right? And what's in the best interests of Taiwan? I agree with you in the sense when you uh, point out that when we decided to bring China into the World Trade Organization and uh, you know accept that China is one country, up to and including Taiwan, uh, that we basically sealed Taiwan's fate in that respect. But I'd, I'd make the argument that we had no place and no business doing that in the first place. Right. Uh, we do not uh, control who is a sovereign nation and who isn't contrary to popular belief. Um, and, you know, there is a, a distinct, thriving, you know, uh, uh, country that is Taiwan. Uh, and I'm going to get censored by all the Chinese media here. You know, they, they exist. They're a thing. They want to be a thing. Lots of, lots of other nations um, agree that they're a thing as well. And, you know, my heart bleeds for them a little bit. You know, in that respect, they, they should have the ability and the autonomy to, to exist independently of China. Uh, I don't know what the best, you know, strategy forward is, but I can tell you that it doesn't include, you know, um, arming them, you know, and, and provoking uh, hostilities. And it also doesn't include allowing you know, them to just totally be dominated by China either. So I'm kind of like on this weird, in this weird predicament, you know, same same sentiments that I had for Ukraine, same sentiments that I have for a lot of countries that are in kind of this weird gray middle zone uh, of autonomy. They don't want to be a part of China. They're not a part of China. They were never part of the communist government. They, they might speak the same language and have similar culture, but, you know, They've got a thriving economy that they set up themselves. They they're doing their own thing, and they deserve to be left alone. Just period.
1: Well, that's certainly where my where my sympathies lie. My sympathies are entirely with the with the Taiwanese, and certainly I think that the United States government has had its hand in in there the entire time. You know, from from the very beginning, it prevented the civil war from being concluded. So from from the very beginning the United States made a decision about what was going to be tolerated and what wasn't regarding the politics of Taiwan. And that 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 continued and this was of a piece with its generally interventionist strategy during the Cold War and in the unipolar moment. That being said, I also have to think about what I what I think is best for the country. Um the United States, that is. While my sympathies are with Taiwan, my allegiance is to the United States. That's where I am, it's where my kids are, and I, I want to be making a decision on the basis of what I think is going to be in the long-term interest of the United States. And so, while I do think that there are many reasons to support Taiwan and support its independence, I also think that that can't come at the expense of completely destroying our relationship with Beijing. So strategic ambiguity has been working just fine. I don't think we need to clarify it. I think we should swat down any talk about independence. I also think we should start using third parties to sell the arms to Taiwan because I just think the optics of it make it very difficult for Beijing not to up the rhetoric. And usually it's just rhetoric, but you also get a lot of, you know, uh, the the Taiwan air defense zone thing, which I know is just kind of a made up thing that everybody draws around them, but like. It is, it is in the news a lot, you know, it is a potential place for conflict because they, you know, uh, you know, get the fighters up in the air to, you know, potentially intercept them. What if there was an accident? You know, we don't want to be stoking these. A lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things can go wrong. I don't think we should try poking around over there. Um, gosh, I, I, I don't see that, that Taiwan would ever want to go back, um, I don't think China wants to try and force it militarily. Um, yes, it has a lot of strategic value just because of its geography. Um, MacArthur called it a, a floating aircraft carrier off the off the coast of, of China. So, I mean, like, I, I get it. It's part of the first island chain, you know. Um, but I also don't think it's, like, a total hopeless disaster. Like, I don't think that if Taiwan were to be... Re, uh, to be joined to the mainland, Uh, I won't say reunified, but let's say joined to the mainland. Uh, Yeah, that that could definitely change Japan's security calculations, but I don't think it makes an invasion of Japan more likely. I don't think an invasion of Japan is likely, period. Just like I don't think they're going to start invading Vietnam or Indonesia or the Philippines or anything. They they have drawn a line, which the uh, international courts have said is invalid. They're still disputing that stuff. But really, there's not much chance of anyone like dying over this. Like, I feel like a lot of those uh, disputes with the Philippines and uh, over like gas drilling uh, with Vietnam, like th- those tend to just kind of be occasional flare-ups. But they're not anything anyone's really going to go to war over at this point, uh, because China will just buy it from them, right? Um, there could come a time when resources are scarce and the money and the economy is not in shape, and like maybe that will be a different question. But at least for now, to me, it looks like Taiwan is the place where it could happen. I think militarizing the straits further as is now being recommended is, is just as, as crazy as can be. Um,
3: Well, at least so overtly doing so, like for real, I think I'd like to tell all of the, you know, hawks and the geopolitical strategists just to shut the hell up about it. Right? Like if that's the option and we start making it incredibly difficult for China to invade it, just to help out the Taiwanese, I, I mean, I can sympathize with that effort, but like, let's not telegraph that and let's not make that like a direct action of the United States like that. I think that's that's just asking for trouble. Asking
1: yeah, for I trouble. mean, it, the, the gray zone status they have right now is just fine. And uh, we've talked about it. I think we're both of, of the opinion that an invasion of Taiwan would would not be a fun thing and might not even succeed uh, for the mainland. I think, uh, you know, a blockade. A blockade might be something, but uh, again, you know, that's that's going to hurt China's economy, too. Uh, And then, of course, you know, the rest of the world might uh, large parts of the rest of the world might pile sanctions on if they feel like Taiwan didn't do anything, for example. Um, But just I had sent you that other piece from The New York Times, which I thought was interesting because it was against interest what they wrote, which was that the Europeans didn't want to have anything to do with this most recent spat over Taiwan. They had issued very strong statements supporting Taiwan right after the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But they, they really stepped back from this one. They, all, they pretty much across the board, with the exception of Lithuania, which is just always trying to cause trouble. Um, <laughs> frankly, the Lithuanians are just always trying to cause trouble. Um, but they, they've all essentially said, yeah, this we don't think this trip is wise, given all the, the geopolitical turmoil and stuff. And yeah, that would, that would be my opinion as well. I don't want the Taiwanese people to get killed. I don't want them to get invaded. I don't want Beijing to be put in a situation where it feels like its credibility is on the line and it has real security concerns, and so it inv- it tries to invade it. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen enough now that war is possible. Great power competition has, has reemerged, and our politicians, our diplomats are not used to that they are they all came up during the unipolar moment they've been used to the united states pretty much getting to do whatever it wants and push people around uh we're now getting in the faces of some of some countries who could who could seriously hit back and could cause a lot of damage uh to other countries around the world as well we think about just kind of the 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 countries that are getting hit in africa because of the the grain uh not coming out of russia and out of ukraine you know, that, that's not something any of the security planners in Washington or at Alliance headquarters in Brussels were probably thinking about uh, when Putin was making his demands, but then it happened, and now all these people are going to starve, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we we all want peace, I think, most of us. Some people, you know, who work in the arms industry, yeah, John Bolton does not want peace. Some people don't want peace, but I feel like among most ordinary people, if you ask them, hey... Do you think that we should provoke China into a war over Taiwan and go fight the Chinese over Taiwan? I feel like most of them would say no. I feel like most of them would say no. And and the people who would say yes are exactly the people who would never have to go fight. You know, people like, uh, you know, Bob Menendez or, you know, pick someone from the American Enterprise Institute or the Hudson Institute or wherever else. So, Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think I think the, the Democrats actually are the, are ironically the, the much safer party right now in terms of foreign policy. Yes, they are very aggressive. Yes, they are very hawkish, but they also have a very comprehensive and multilateral vision of how these things should go. And they are, uh, you know, a lot of familiar professionals. They made a lot of mistakes. We all know who they are. But when I look at, at the possible Republican field, I just I'm just so terrified of what might happen because they have a real knee jerk fear of china um even people who who have popular personalities like tucker carlson who have been really associated with more of kind of the isolationist non-interventionist uh wing of the populist uh right uh he just gets all worked up over china and how dangerous china is and and i just fear uh some kind of accident happening and 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 the rush to war yeah I well mean, look
3: man i think i think it's trade in my opinion i think more trade we need to do more trade lots lots more trade we should we're trying to need some chips right we should we should hook them up with taiwan and and they should trade for chips and yeah that'll make everybody happy just er- everyone get rich no one kill each other just <laughs> just, every, that, just that everyone would focus be, on yeah. getting rich
1: <laughs> that would that would be my preference absolutely so i don't know Uh, it's it's increasingly looking zero sum so it doesn't bode well it doesn't bode well but uh, uh, good news we'll end on some good news how about that uh, she is planning on meeting Biden face to face this fall in November in Bali at the G20 so uh, I feel like if we can just make it through these next few months here get him in a room uh, I mean there's been a lot of back and forth prior to the Pelosi trip. It seemed like the initial, uh, very aggressive, uh, posturing by people like Jake Sullivan, who, when he met his Chinese counterpart, uh, before and after the Russian invasion was just all about, yeah, you see what we're doing to them. Here's everything we're doing to them. And if you so much as touch one of these lines, we will slam your fingers in the window so hard. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just very bellicose, very tough. I mean, people who act like Joe Biden is a wimp and you know, like I, I feel like they just they they listen to too much conservative talk radio or something, <laughs> like not enough time actually reading the policies that they that they promulgate and what their administration officials say. I mean, Joe Biden has has had a very aggressive foreign policy, um, and so
3: so should we be worried about did. the fact that the, that he's going to meet Xi? I mean, no, I think dialogue is good. Uh, I think, you know, Henry's not here, but he would definitely say, you know, one of the things that frustrates him the most about the war in Ukraine right now is that we're just not talking to anyone in Ukraine, Uh, excuse me, in Russia. You know, we're just not we're just not even having that dialogue. So we're not in a in a crisis right now with China. Let's try and keep it that way by increasing the dialogue, you know. And again, let's just do some business and make money. Like that's a, that's all that everyone yeah, maintaining cares about. Any anyway. status
1: quo. <laughs> yeah, it's all going pretty OK. It's managed to keep no war for like 50 years. Right. Yeah.
3: Let's see ways that we can make it even better. Right. Like push yeah, the limit. Absolutely. Mm hmm. All right, man. Well, well, this has been a fun chat. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show, Joe, uh, and filling in for Henry in his uh, wonderful uh, vacation on his honeymoon. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, Joe, I want to give you the last couple minutes here to plug yourself, tell everybody where they can find you, how they can support you, uh, or read more uh, of your work.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, you can check out my website, uh, www.jsmwritings.com. I publish most of my stuff at the Mises Institute, the Libertarian Institute. I put occasional things in antiwar.com. I also do a lot of academic publishing. Um, I've got uh, the big uh, fake China threat paper um, anyone who has any feedback on that please uh, get a hold of me that's at the Libertarian Institute but it's actually for a, a conference paper that I'm submitting and uh, a lot of that work too is is uh, for, for a, uh, a, a series of book chapters that I'm that I'm contributing to a to a book about China um, along with a couple of colleagues um, at antiwar.com and at the Libertarian Institute so yeah uh, if you follow me on Twitter at uh, Solis underscore Mullen, uh, I tend to post uh, links to all my work as it comes out. and just to give daily updates, uh, I talk a lot about the news and just how to understand what's going on in the news. Um, I don't have anything to lie to you about. Uh, i don't I don't get paid for any of my opinions. Um, I get paid after after i after I write the opinions, I should say. <laughs> um, so, Yeah, I've had pieces get rejected just because they, they don't like what I say.
2: (laughs) Well, that's how you do it. I'm never going to say something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm never going to say something that I, that I don't think. And, and I, I am generally very studious in, in trying to figure out what's actually going on. Um, because we are, we are at a pretty dangerous moment. And I feel like the impulse is always to have the heightened sense of fear and to overreact. And yet, just look at the Pelosi visit. Couple, you know, almost a week or so, week and a half's gone by. Things have settled back down, you know. Yes, everything seemed very bad and very scary in the run up to it, and you know it was, you know, kind of nerve wracking. But as things pass, see that uh, you know this can be managed. Uh, I just I, I think people should just remain calm about the China situation. It's it's not going anywhere. They're big, they're pretty strong, they're economically important. You should not want bad things to happen to China because that will very much affect our standard of living over here.
3: Yep. Well, uh, that's it for our show today. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Bro History. Uh, If you like the show and you've been listening thus far, please rate and review the show it is the best way to support us and uh, if you are interested we had an episode just last episode on reviewing your reviews so we really appreciate them so keep that coming tell us what you think tell us what you like tell us what you don't like we love hearing it all also, if you really, really want to support the show, you can join us on Patreon, uh, where you get access to our Slack community, and we get to talk about all these fun things. Joe's even part of the group, so if you want to talk shit to him, uh, there is an <laughs> avenue for that directly. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks again for coming on the show, Joe. It's been a pleasure. One little programming note, we're going to be off next week, because both Henry and I will be out of the country, so a little bit of a gap there. Thanks for coming, everybody.
0: Catch you later.